0: Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
1: Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom.
4: Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. This weekend marks the 20th anniversary of the attacks on 9-11. And we'll take stock in a number of ways, as John Dickerson explains. It's hard to
2: imagine there are still aspects of 9-11 and its aftermath yet to come to light. Take the daring raid that killed Osama bin Laden. The SEAL teams that went into this, they didn't think they would make it back.
5: That was a surprise to me.
2: A conversation with Chris Wallace about his new book. And Luke Burbank reports on Rescue Dogs, those four-legged heroes of 9-11. 9-11 then and now, later on Sunday morning.
4: Summer's drawing to a close. The new season is upon us. And all through this morning, we'll be offering you some coming attractions. Jim Axelrod has a preview.
6: The face is familiar, and so is the name. What'd you say? Michael Gandolfini steps into his late father's shoes as young Tony Soprano in a new film that explores the roots of the groundbreaking mob saga.
7: The first instinct was no. Ben Mankiewicz catches up with Cedric
1: the Entertainer. I would sing, I would do poems, so I was like, don't call me a comedian, call me an
4: entertainer. Steve Hartman has his own take on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, and more. It's Sunday morning, September 12th, 2021, and we'll be back after this.
1: I'm on Prozac.
8: Oh, oh, my God. I've been seeing the therapist. Oh, my God. I think that's great.
4: Curtain going up on the new season. We're going to be offering you some coming attractions over the next few weeks. And we begin at the movies. Jim Axelrod takes a closer look at an anxiously awaited prequel to the wildly popular television series The Sopranos.
6: After six seasons, 86 episodes, and a place on just about every critic's list of most influential TV shows ever.
0: We are a family. And even in this f***ed up day and age, that means something.
6: After Tony Soprano's North Jersey mafia family rewrote the rules, spurning network standards.
4: So what, no f***ing now? Hey!
6: For the freedom of cable.
4: It's been a long odyssey with your mother, hasn't it?
6: Oh, these last
1: 500 years you've seen the race by.
6: After show creator David Chase gave us a brutal mob boss who spent sessions with his shrink talking about his mother. And where did all that come from, the therapy part and the mother part?
8: Well, I was in therapy, and largely because of my mother, you know. He knew
6: exactly what he'd hear once the series was over. Don't stop.
8: People that I'd meet socially would say, are you going to do more? Oh, we should do more.
6: Are we always thinking never, I'm done?
8: Yeah, yes, I did.
6: But 14 years later, hours, turns out he wasn't done. James Gandolfini's death in 2013 meant a sequel was out. So Chase went the other way. Setting a movie 30-plus years before the show. The Many Saints of Newark is the story of Dickie Moltisanti a father figure to the young Tony who'd been mentioned on The Sopranos but never fleshed out.
8: You remember Dicky Moltisanti? No. No? Is that what you said? Is he a friend of yours? He was my father. I went back over my memories and I thought, oh yeah, Dicky Moltisanti was all that talk about him and he was really a, you know, a badass. I'm interested in that. I'd like to to find out who that guy was.
6: This isn't a Tony Soprano origin story.
8: No, it is not. We wanted to make a gangster movie. We didn't want to make an origin story. We wanted to make a gangster movie.
6: Whatever Chase's intentions, a prequel meant meeting younger versions of such well-known and beloved characters as Sylvia, Uncle Junior, and Tony's mother, Livia, and making sure they rang true. Where's the line between honoring the integrity
8: of the character, and parody? Mostly casting. Mm. That's
4: mostly where the line
6: is. More than writing?
4: Yeah, I think so. I felt this obligation to these characters as a fan of The Sopranos.
6: Actor John Magaro plays the young Silvio Dante. Hey, sir, so I need to talk to my Uncle Dickie.
7: He's not here. His car's
6: here. he's dead. Tony Soprano's eventual right-hand man portrayed by Steve Van Zandt in the show.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Last year I made bail so fast, my soup was still warm when I got home.
4: For me, it started with the, the, you know, the puss he has, that's kind of the frown he has, and then gets into the shoulders a little (laughs) bit, and then it's, you know, he always has his hands kind of like this, he kind of keeps his arms in.
6: Magaro says the pressure to capture the essence of these iconic characters and not do impressions of them was felt cast wide.
4: You know, nothing is like playing a character where you have millions of rabid fans who are ready to pounce on you at the slightest mistake. And, uh, you know, this has come out in a few weeks, and uh, I'm going to have to turn my phone off and internet off for a few weeks because it's going to be scary as hell. You know, they're going to come at us.
6: No choice will be more scrutinized than the actor cast to play the young Tony Soprano. Did you audition other actors? Yes. We auditioned uh, other actors prior to him. Once you auditioned him, you knew? Yeah.
7: Him. What'd you say? Is Michael Gandolfini, James Gandolfini's son. The first instinct was no. It comes with pressure. It comes with a responsibility. And and then a whole nother layer of, you know, playing my dad's part.
6: But then he did something he'd never done before.
7: Before your
6: prep for the audition, you had never watched the series?
7: That is true. Yeah, I'd never seen it. And my dad passed, so it was kind of a thing like, it's going to be hard, I don't really want to open that up right now. And then I watched the first season before the audition and just fell in love. It was just, I was so proud of my dad.
6: He studied his dad's work especially those therapy scenes. This isn't
1: going to work. I can't talk about my personal life.
7: Hours with a character who has triggers and impulses and a mindset. So it's such a gift. I have hours inside of a mind that I'm about to play. Oh, what's the matter? Don't cry. It's only me, Uncle Tony. I don't know what it is. It's like a scam or something.
6: The gift was enough confidence to give it a go despite the shadows and footsteps he knew he'd confront. Did any party you think, you know what, I'm good. I don't need to do this.
7: I don't know if you've ever jumped out of a plane or something, but you go and you look back and you go, how did I do that? Sometimes I, it baffles me, too, that I, I just sort of did it. Yeah, I guess if I had thought about it too much, it would have crippled me.
6: Were you at all concerned any part of your calculus what if this doesn't work what consequence might there be for michael
8: no he's an actor he wants to work he wants to be a star or whatever no i I mean he's what is he now 2022 you asked for it so
7: i want to go to college i can't get called like
6: this
8: David Chase knows he's asked for it as well. I always think to myself, when are people going to get tired of this family? I mean, how about never? I, I mean, I guess that's possible, yeah. That's just not the
6: way I think. Knowing one thing he can count on from the extended family of passionate Sopranos fans is an unvarnished answer. And so I'm asking a guy who's at this level, does it still matter?
8: Yeah. I mean, I'm one human being trying to communicate with a couple of million human beings, and what they respond to me, of course it matters. Ankle dick. If they say, you surprised me, that was interesting, or, that matters as opposed to, hey, a-hole. you know, that's... We saw
1: that already.
4: Time for the new season in television. Cedric the Entertainer has been making us laugh for decades now. And he's about to add host of the Emmy Awards to his long list of credits. He's talking with our man in Hollywood, Ben Mankiewicz.
0: Cedric the Entertainer is riding high.
1: That's the rumble in the jungle right there. You don't even need to drive anywhere. You just... Yeah, you just scare people <laughs> right just... there with that.
0: His car collection includes a custom 1941 Ford pickup.
1: You know, I love the lines on the trucks of the of the 40 trucks. That's what really made me buy this. I love the way the front yeah. was. And
0: then there's this vintage beauty.
1: The year was 1960. Thunderbird. Thunderbird.
0: Class, style, and high performance. The T-Bird's nice, too.
1: I call her Lovey.
0: Audiences have been loving Cedric the Entertainer for three decades, buying into a comedian who's dapper and driven.
1: Caught my grandmother cheating at cars they put her out, man. <laughs> we was like, that's grandma. They're like, she gotta go. She she gotta go. I'm constantly trying to push the, you know, push the meter. It's like, what's next? It just shows up in your in your DNA like that.
0: And show business is in this 57 year old's DNA. He's a comedian, actor, and producer with dozens of film and TV credits. Currently, he stars in two CBS shows: The Greatest At Home Videos and The Neighborhood. Next Sunday, he'll host the Emmy Awards, also on CBS, A Dream Come True.
1: It felt like, wow, you're sitting there hosting the television prom, if you will. Just growing up and realizing how big a night that is, I felt like, oh, this is going to be fun.
0: In case you were wondering, Cedric the Entertainer is not his real name. He was born Cedric Antonio Kyles and raised in Carruthersville, Missouri.
1: Small-town America, you know, you got the hamburger place up there, you got football games, everybody was family. What was your life like at home? Uh, my mother's a school teacher, single-parent household. She raised my younger sister, myself, you know, with a lot of love. We had a very, you know, kind of aspirational energy.
0: But Carruthersville wasn't idyllic. There were rules, different rules, for blacks and whites.
1: I remember there was a single-movie theater that, you know, it was... It's kind of like an unwritten rule that blacks go on a certain night, whites go on a different night.
0: He came to comedy late. After college, he tried his hand at broadcasting. Then came a stint selling fax machines.
1: I just remember how magical people thought it was, and, and like how hard it was like to to sell it at first. Like, man, that can't happen. People are like that's not true. <laughs> I still don't think I it could like, happen.
0: No, it's gonna happen. Watch. He sold electronics at Best Buy. Were you good at selling stuff? Not
1: really. Yeah. Not really. I had a personality that yeah. could, like, engage, but I didn't really know how to close people, so yeah. I'd just have a bunch of small conversations for quite a while. And then <laughs> <laughs> and leave without making a Hey,
0: things nice meeting you, man. You're great. Next, he was a claims adjuster for
1: State Farm. Oh, the original Jake. Hey, uh, I didn't order any pizza.
4: Jake from State Farm. (laughs) The original
1: Jake. Yeah. The original, had the cards and everything, khakis. Probably another job I wasn't really set up for, but I was really good at, like, getting people into rental cars for prom for their kids. That was my move. (laughs) That's what people really loved about me, is like, yo, man, Uh, you know, I had a shopping cart kind of hit my car I'm gonna need to put in the shop for (laughs) a week. You, like, got it. So it's prom time, right? So you were good for the customer, maybe not great for State no, Farm. No, and I think that's why they never really bothered to bring me back for any reason, like to do commercials or anything.
0: He'd always been funny, but he didn't try stand-up comedy until his mid-20s. A friend talked him into it. Right out of the gate, he won $500 in a stand-up competition. He quit State Farm and hit the road. But Cedric Kyle's didn't sound right
1: where does Cedric the Entertainer come in? You know, I performed as just Cedric. I performed as Cheerio for a (laughs) short period of time there. And I did get a cease-to-desist letter from General Mills. Is that true? True story. I never really wanted to do, like, my formal name. I would sing, I would do poems. So I was like, don't call me a comedian, call me an entertainer. So he introduced me as Cedric the Entertainer, and that was it. It
0: wasn't easy. The road was paved with rough nights and long drives. But he had support along the way including from fellow comedian Steve Harvey, who owned a comedy club in Dallas.
1: I came to his club, and he put me on, and I performed, I did really well. Every night he would, like, let me come and do five, six minutes at the end, and so I just killed it every time, and he gave me 200 bucks, and then he brought me back uh, maybe, like, two months later to headline. That must have felt this unbelievable. This guy is the best. Yeah. Yeah.
0: High Tower Robinson, you're out of here. A few years later, they teamed up as co-stars on The Steve Harvey
1: Show. Say, let me ask your opinion of something. Take a shower, change your drugs.
0: And on the groundbreaking Kings of Comedy tour.
1: Talking about we want a black president. Come on, y'all, now, you know, I mean, you know, we got Clinton that's close. We had a blast doing it, and, you know, to be out on tour with those guys, you know, lifelong friendships through that situation. This is the barbershop. The place where a black man means some Cornerstone Neighborhood. Our own country club.
0: Film roles followed, among them Eddie Walker,
1: imparting old school wisdom in the barbershop movies. Now I had a couple of different voices that I was like toying with, but then, you know, as I just started doing it, this guy showed up and it was like a combination of a guy from my mom's church an uncle of mine and it got to the point to where I literally didn't even need a script like I could do Eddie just you say something to me I can talk for hours as Eddie you would have driven him nuts he wasn't patient like I am now he's back
0: as Calvin Butler in season 4 of The Neighborhood a show about a white family moving into a predominantly African American community
1: I almost got trampled twice you know, that's weird, because I almost stepped on somebody twice. <laughs>
0: the show is a comedy about gentrification, but gentrification. Cedric sees it as a metaphor for these how divisive times.
1: And it's all about not kicking people out in order to make it new, but how do we uplift and move forward with everybody being exactly who they are? We used to have Father's Day basketball games. I
0: Married for 22 years, Cedric the Entertainer is about to be an empty nester. His youngest just graduated high school. But this entertainer isn't slowing down. He's still revved up and raring to go.
1: We got one little mood that we know we owe. old when we can't just step into the car no more. You know your ass old when you leave like this. All right, I'm going to holler at y'all. Right.
0: All he needs is a mic, a spotlight, and a crowd.
1: Going on that stage, like, just that moment, just get a joke that works. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, yes, got to do this.
4: excludes restaurants additional terms and fees apply This morning we're remembering the trauma and tragedy of the attacks of 9/11 20 years on You may not recollect that the CIA had identified Osama bin Laden as mastermind of those attacks even before that terrible day had drawn to a close. Yet the search to find him took another ten tortured years. Chris Wallace has written a new book about the hunt for the world's most wanted man. It's published by Viacom CBS's Simon & Schuster, and he talks with our John Dickerson.
9: Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda.
2: The 2011 military assault on Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, was so successful, it is possible to forget how difficult the U.S. Navy SEAL mission really was. The SEAL teams that went into this, they didn't think they would make it back.
5: That was a surprise to me. And I will tell you that one of the top CIA operatives back watching the drone view back at Langley at CIA headquarters, fully expected that he was going to see the compound just explode like a Jerry Bruckheimer action movie, that the whole place was just going to blow up.
2: The SEALs didn't know if bin Laden would even be there, and if he was, he'd be ringed by tripwires, bodyguards, and maybe Pakistani troops.
5: In fact, O'Neill called his particular team of the SEALs the Martyrs Brigade, because he thought we're going to go out there, we're going to do it, we're going to avenge 9-11, we're going to bring bin Laden to justice, but there's no way we're getting home.
2: Rob O'Neill, the Navy SEAL credited with killing bin Laden, is just one of the characters in Chris Wallace's new book, Countdown Bin Laden, that traces 247 days leading up to that fateful moment.
5: The president is making a decision about a raid that's going to endanger the lives of the couple of dozen seals that threatens relations with a very important ally, Pakistan, and not so incidentally, probably betting his presidency.
2: Where do you put this one in the the history of tough presidential calls?
5: In terms of just the process, the professionalism, the care, the meticulousness, this is right at the top.
2: Wallace's account isn't just about night vision goggles and stairway firefights. It also follows the painstaking puzzle work done at lonesome cubicles and in windowless conference rooms.
5: The old line, the harder you work, the luckier you get. They had worked as hard as, I can't see anything more they could have done to give themselves a chance for success here. It wasn't the only thing going on at the time. Obama has got a civil war in Libya. He's got the Arab Spring across the Middle East. He's got Donald Trump pushing the birther
9: movement. We provided additional information today about uh, the site of my birth.
2: Four days before the raid, President Obama had to prove he was born in America.
9: But I'm speaking to the vast majority of the American people, uh, as well as to the press. We do not have time for this kind of silliness. We got better stuff to do.
5: It's true of every president. You get don't get to decide what issues you're going to deal with, what's going to be on your plate today. Uh, you know, some of it you get to decide, but some of it is just incoming.
2: The clock was ticking. The longer the CIA worked to be certain they'd found bin Laden, the greater the chance they might spook him, losing the best chance they had in nine years. Were you conscious of the disconnect between what we see and
5: then what's really going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. I mean, nobody had a clue. Remember, the night before the raid, Obama is at the White House correspondence Dinner, and he's taking off after Donald Trump because Trump has been propagating the birther theory, and he starts making fun of the decisions that Trump made on on celebrity apprentice
9: but you mr trump recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership and so ultimately you didn't blame little john or meatloaf you fired gary Busey, and these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night he's 24
5: hours from the biggest decision of his presidency, and perhaps it's either going to secure or eliminate the chances for his reelection.
2: It was the biggest decision for that president, but a typical presidential one, a choice where the chance for success was not much better than 50%. And even the best outcome was one where Americans were almost certain to die.
5: I came to a, quite a different view of Obama through writing this book. Did a lot of people think he was the candidate of of hope and change and peace and a dove? Yeah, but they didn't recognize how tough Obama was. Admiral William McRaven, the head of U.S.
2: Special Operations Command, was also surprised.
5: One of the things that McRaven said is, I know the guy had never been in the military, but he was so discerning about what was important and what wasn't, and he knew his strengths, and he knew his limits. He knew the stuff he didn't know, and he wasn't going to presume or pretend that, you know, I'm more of a general than the generals.
2: Given that, what do you think when leaders say, well, I just trust my
5: gut? I think they're damn fools.
2: Do you ever think some of the people who are running or who want to run, you think, they couldn't have handled this kind of challenge that that Obama faced or that any president faces when it really gets to the toughest things? Yes. As a regular presidential debate moderator, Wallace has thought a lot about what it takes to be president.
5: I mean, there are a lot of things about the presidency other than making these kinds of life and death decisions. But for the biggest things, the things like bin Laden, the things like getting out of Afghanistan and confronting North Korea and and all of these things, there are going to be crises, completely unforeseen crises. And the idea of thinking, really thinking, could they handle that? Could they handle all of the incoming, all of the information, all of the pressure, all of the risks, all of the possibilities, and come to the right conclusion? And in the end, it's kind of a guess. You don't know until they're there. But it's a useful way to look at a potential president.
4: Steve Hartman has a portrait of love everlasting.
10: After 20 years in a box... Monica Eichen is ironing her wedding dress, getting ready to wear it once more. And although she will wipe away every wrinkle, she will not smooth over the tragedy it represents.
8: I think wearing the dress makes a statement.
10: What is the statement?
8: That I was happily married the day he died. And I was looking forward to having a family.
10: Monica was married just 11 months when her husband Michael, a bond trader, died in Tower 2. It was a brief marriage, but Monica says the loss feels everlasting.
8: There is no moving on. You never move on from it. You move in. You move into the life that was chosen for you. Hi, my name is Monica Eichen, founder of September's Mission.
10: When I first met Monica, just four months after 9-11, she'd already moved into that new life.
7: We will fight.
10: Advocating for a memorial on the site of the towers and warning that any other use of the land would be unacceptable. You're going to stand down there in front of the bulldozers and not let them put up a building.
8: Right. We don't build over crying souls.
10: She was tenacious, relentless. George Pataki, New York governor at the time, says it's important to remember that a lot of people didn't think we needed a memorial here. People who just said we had to move on just rebuild. But Monica said this was hallowed ground. Was there a louder voice than hers?
1: (laughs) A lot of people deserve credit that but certainly monica is among the most
10: monica has since remarried and has a family but she freely admits and has come to accept that she will always be in love with two men
8: we can live our lives but still keep that memory
10: moving in but never moving on her motto and her vision for this most sacred space
4: Some 300 search dog teams combed the wreckage of Ground Zero in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, which brings us to this tale of dogged determination from Luke Burbank.
3: 9-11 was undoubtedly one of the darkest moments in our nation's history. But the attacks and the days after also brought out heroes of all kinds, Some of them on four legs.
8: Can't put a price on them. That smoke you see over there, uh, they can smell through that, and we can.
3: Among them was Anna, a dog trained to find humans in the tangled rubble. All at the direction of her handler, Rick Lee, a firefighter from Sacramento. Overall, kind of reminded me of the old World War II films of London being bombed because everything had no color. It was all gray. Everything's destroyed. 20 years later, Lee still vividly remembers searching what had been Building 7 of the World Trade Center. There had been heavy equipment working there for several hours, and they saw the dogs. They asked if we could search the area. We got up on the pile. You can hear a pin drop. We searched the area, and dogs didn't detect any human scent, live human scent. Which was important because it allowed rescuers to move on to other sections of Ground Zero, where there might be survivors. Lee and his dog knew what they were doing, due in no small part to Wilma Melville, a retired gym teacher from Central California.
11: I wanted to learn to train a dog to do something special. Showing a poodle is not, to me particularly special. But learning to train a dog to find a person who might be alive after a disaster, that's special.
3: Well into her 50s, Melville and her beloved dog Murphy learned the art of search and rescue. And their first deployment was Oklahoma City.
11: 168 people died in Oklahoma City. That got branded on my heart. While searching the rubble, Melville noticed something. I could see firsthand that although we have many really terrific civilian dog handlers, I saw that for the first two days, the firefighters, meaning the task force, Stood back and wondered, what are we going to do with these civilians? And so
3: she returned home to California with a plan start a nonprofit, the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, that would do something that hadn't been done before train firefighters and dogs together, free of charge. The kicker,
9: she'd get most of the dogs from rescue shelters. Kind of looking for a dog that's got a really, really high drive that really doesn't make a good pet. They're gonna run on the rubble, they're gonna do everything just to get that toy and that reward. So they have to be really, really driving.
3: Jason Vasquez is an LA County fire captain. He says search dogs use their keen noses, search, and outsized enthusiasm to find humans and human remains in disasters.
10: Don't pull her all the way out!
9: They're using 100% smell. They use the sight to get over the rubble, okay? But their nose is 100% working and that's how they find somebody.
3: There are a number of folks out here. How does the dog know to go look for the one guy that's hiding in a barrel?
9: It's kind of like somebody playing like a little kid game hide and seek. The person that's out and they can see them, you're not the one I'm looking for. I'm looking for the one I can't see that's hard to find.
3: The foundation's headquarters in Santa Paula, California are a sort of search dog Disneyland.
7: Where are they, bud? Where are they?
3: With simulated collapsed freeways, leaning buildings, and many piles of rubble and wrecked cars. Wait. Search! It's the only facility of its kind in the U.S. built specifically for dogs to learn search and rescue.
11: I had... An ambition, once the Search Dog Foundation got going, to create 168 FEMA-certified teams, one for each person that died in Oklahoma City. And just last year, this agency made it to the 168th mark. An incredible accomplishment
3: for an organization that survives solely on donations and love for these animals. I find it interesting because it seems like you possess the characteristics that you're looking for in these dogs.
11: I suspect that's exactly true. And so does any person who is a success in whatever they venture to do. You can't be stopped by one or two or three or four hurdles. You can't be stopped because it's difficult. You can't be stopped because people say, why are you doing that? You can't be stopped by anything.
4: Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning.
7: Get ready to skidoo into stories, because there's a new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue
10: and two inside our storybook with you. Your preschooler can wind down wherever you choose. Blue's always ready for a snuggly
3: snooze. Ooh, I think I'm almost ready for a nap now, too. When
9: it's time to settle down, Blue and all our friends are here for your preschooler. <laughs> Listen to Storytime with Josh and Blue wherever you get your podcasts.